Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Future of Internal Communication podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication. This podcast explores the evolving role of internal communication in the future of work. I'm Jen Sproul, Chief Exec of the ROIC, and I've teamed up with Kat Barnard, partner at Working in the Future, and we're joined by Don Walters, our leadership comms expert. Together, we host a conversation about the changing nature of internal communication. And in each episode, we're joined by a special guest. With so much disruption to daily life, stress and anxiety are on the rise. And one in four of us will have experienced a mental health issue in the last year. Organisations face growing pressures to address the well-being concerns of their employees. But what role does internal communication play in workplace well-being? In this episode, we explore how we as communicators can help architect workplaces that support optimal well-being at work. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Series 3, Episode 6 of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Kat Barnard, and as ever, I am joined today by my co-hosts, Jen Sproul and Dominic Waters. And today we have a special guest, Nick Parle, who is the Chief Executive of the Society of Occupational Medicine, the largest and oldest nationally recognised professional organisation of individuals with an interest in health and work. Through its collective voice, the Society of Occupational Medicine advances knowledge and increases awareness to influence the future of occupational health and the health of people in or returning to work. Welcome, Nick. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Kat. Nice to be here. Brilliant. Thanks for coming to um, chat with us today. First and foremost, um, I'm interested, I've probably paraphrased massively what what the Society of Occupational Medicine does. I mean, who's it for? What's the organization? Who does it serve? Well, historically, it was a product of the Industrial Revolution, and um, you know, Britain was the first um, uh, country to industrialise. Factories were, were needing to provide healthcare for their workers and their NHS. Um, and in 1935, you might argue a bit late, actually, they, they formed an association of industrial medical officers, um, which then formed the SOM in the 60s and then became out of the three um, only about 10 to 15 years ago. So we are an organisation of individuals who work in workplaces, you know, be they factories or now more in the offices, but, you know, some quite interesting places from, you know, British nuclear fuels to um, places where they make uh, nuclear weapons in quite dangerous places. And I suppose that is where people are coming from in terms of danger initially, but also now moving much more to preventive um, health and its wider sense of well-being. So that's, that's where it's come from. And I suppose having a kind of, medical uh, kind of roots means we are kind of research and evidence-based and looking for solutions which um, aren't just the kind of the latest fad and um, trying to improve people's health at work which uh, Public Health England have said is a you know, really huge health gain you can do if you help people um, through their working time to be healthy then um, you don't get situations like you know, people dropping out of work before they're due for their pension, which, you know, no one wants to be on universal credit age 57. You want to be able to work through to your, and your, and your, um, and your kind of, when you're ready to take your pension. And the sort of disability employment gap is certainly something that the government 
and we should all be concerned with the worst rates in the whole of the OECD. So, you know, we're individuals, we're evidence-based, big kind of societal value. And have you always worked in the field of health? I have. Um, I've got a public health background and worked in NHS public health teams and, um, you know, worked as a director of a hospice charity. I think, actually, you know, sometimes things happen in a weird and wonderful way, don't they? And, and actually, my parents were both academics, and my dad was a professor of soci- sociology, and he researched about work and um, what work is and um, informal economy. And um, my mum uh, still alive, actually, um, professor of social policy. And that's what's strange, isn't it? You know, this is, this role is around work, healthy work, work, good work being good for you, uh, the future of work, actually, which obviously is having a bit of a moment, um, people thinking how things are going to shift with hybrid working. Um, so if, if, he, if he was alive, I think he'd be, um, you know, pinging me various kind of um, sociological views about where work is going. So that, that sort of often drives me, actually. It's funny how your parents do, um, you know, they have a background, don't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting as well. I mean, um, just for anyone that's listening, we uh, Nick and I were introduced, I think, 2017, perhaps 2018. And when we first started having our conversations, we were talking about, I guess, the evolutionary path of, of, of the Society of Occupational Medicine. And we were talking about how, you know, historically, occupational health had predominantly, to your point about, you know, danger at work, had predominantly focused on physical health and um, physical well-being, whereas now I think, you know, with the way in which uh, things are turning out and certainly the pandemic has massively escalated conversations around the future of work, I think, you know, um, there is a growing demand for a far more holistic conversation about workplace health and well-being that embraces also mental health and emotional health, and I think probably, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists would differentiate between the two, but that our ability to function well in the workplace derives of a number of things that are far more comprehensive and expansive than simply whether your desk and your chair is set up in the right way or, or yeah. you know, whether you've got... Yeah sort of health and safety um, procedures in place if you work in a more physically demanding role. Yeah. No, well said. You know, I agree with all that. I mean, I just, I suppose coming, starting with the physical health, that's not to say there aren't physical, sort of medical issues that are pertinent now. I mean, you know, we're very concerned about, say, long COVID and, you know, there's huge numbers of people, uh, potentially 1.3 million with that, but then, you know, misresolved, but still there's going to be a, group of people that really need help with that kind of you know, a condition that kind of alters and sometimes you're okay, sometimes you're not. So they do need that medical support. Um, so there, there are kind of physical medical issues now, but you're right about the move to kind of mental health. I mean, even before the pandemic, we knew there was a problem there. Um, this has been highlighted. Actually, the data is not that clear that things have definitely got worse in terms of mental health. Um, we need to be careful about that and not um, catastrophize, actually. But I think still there's always been a problem. We still need to focus on that problem. And actually, I think, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying in terms of kind of, you know, emotional health, the kind of therapeutic and restorative role that kind of professionals such as yourselves and professional professionals deal with. Um, 
but also the kind of the, the way people see work now has shifted. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I, mean, I think people's employers really need to see um, employees or people working organisations almost as customers. You know, that, you know, are you okay? You know, they're, they're there. You know, to be kept uh, happy because actually people think, well, oh, stuck it. I'm going to go and work somewhere else. And the, you know, people are shifting around looking for that work-life balance, that work that really has purpose and um, you know, one of the organizations we work quite closely is business to community and they're very um, sort of focused on what, what, what if your job is good for you and a lot of it comes from that sort of sense of purpose. I mean, do you really buy in to what this organization is doing? You know, I mean, organizations might be doing terrible things. I mean, I've dealt with um, someone who was part of the proof of kill team uh, for the drone kind of department in the Ministry of Defence, you know, I mean, that's pretty hardcore to check out whether someone's been blown up, or, you know, effectively or not. But, you know, if there's a sense of purpose that like that is, you know, really important, this is a bad person, you know, as a part of protecting you know, the UK and the team supports each other, then even in something that you might think consider as pretty difficult to find purpose, you can find purpose. And I think a lot of things come from that sort of values. And, um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, team communication the spaces between teams is, is, is really important but um yeah i mean well said what you said and hopefully you agree with what that said. it's interesting that, that uh, obviously we, well, we've been talking a lot as communicators about the impact that the whole pandemic has had upon mental health. And, and you just said that the evidence may be not there, that it's had a necessarily detrimental effect overall, but it, it clearly has shifted some things. Uh, and I guess one of the things that communicators listening to this would be very interested in is how has the pandemic shifted the climate, if you like, for mental health? Uh, and what does that mean for us as communicators in terms of how we need to deal with and connect with our audiences? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of the duty of care of the employer, it's just gone further, isn't it? I mean, you can't just now, you know, I can see, you know, from you going to Land Rovers, it sounds cool. And, um, you know, we wouldn't normally have um, that kind of conversation, but it's not, not just about whether you're to Land Rovers. It's about, um, you know, things like, you know, serious things like domestic violence, but also, um, you know, what's driving things like, you know, you know finance, maybe got financially stressed. You know, things like the menopause, really important things that now employers realizing that they can't just say, you know, you are a person who has some commute, turns up at nine in the office and leaves at five, and they you know, don't really know what you get up to. They really need to kind of go further than that, especially for office workers. I mean, you know, most of the um, UK is now service industry, but only half people do have the ability to hybrid work. So we need to be careful about these conversations. It's not just about kind of People have the privilege, you could argue, to have families that work at home or hybrid working. Mm. Uh, but I suppose my point is yes, the teacher care has gone further, in which case employers need to have those conversations that do go further. Um, and I think people also, you can't now not have a conversation where you do the kind of, um, you're probably going to roll your eyes on this, but the kind of classic, how are you, how are you? Isn't it? It's like, how are you? No, really, <laughs> how are you? Because I can see, you know, there's some kids screaming in the background or something like that, and um, you, know, you need to kind of work through particularly caring responsibility, you know, I think that's, that's a huge issue that often gets ignored. So, uh, yes, things have shifted. People have seen that, you know, their full self um, or their full lives kind of come, in, you know, what centre stage, you know, on mm. Zoom call or whatever. Um, or even if they're kind of frontline working, you know, how people manage if you're, you know, you're 
mother noise in the dim reviews of isolating, you know, how do you manage that if you're a bus driver? It, these are issues that mean that communication has to be better, has to be much more um, nuanced, sensitive, um, emotionally intelligent. I think you've, you've hit upon there something which we've seen leaders struggle with, I think, which is they, they intellectually know that they, they need to and want to understand the full picture of someone's life, but they find it very hard to establish boundaries. So uh, at what point does yeah. genuine interest become encroachment? Um, what, what's the sort of guidance that SOM would give around that? or What's your experience of that? Yes, um, absolutely. And I think um, <clears throat> encroachment, I suppose, um, the thing that comes to mind is, is use of data, you know, AI, you know, the kind of future um, where data can be used, hopefully, for good. And, uh, you know, um, an operational medicine consultant was telling me about a leading IT company which is using AI data <clears throat> to almost real time kind of see what employees are talking about and then very quickly respond to that, which um, he was suggesting was a great way forward because um, you just get that granularity. You know, employees talking about menopause this week, you know, what, actually, what have you got on the menopause? Nothing. Let's just get something in and the employees see that quick return. Um, but then, um, you know, so, so I suppose kind of using data is always important, I think, not to kind of go to the next kind of app or the next kind of thing that you think improves well-being. You know, be strategic, think about what the gaps are, use data to sort of put in an intervention that really works. And so for me, you know, using data like AI seems to be a good thing. But, um, you know, if it's a case of data that, um, you know, another nameless IT company, I think, was sort of checking email kind of traffic and, you know, if you're not sending enough emails, responding quick enough, then you get sort of a tap on the shoulder. I mean, that is just, you know, really... Um, ethically challenging and you know you can see countries now moving that you know France other countries are saying well, you know, if it's outside office hours that's that's illegal. So encroachment in terms of understanding you know what um uh kind of people are doing and thinking I think is is, is going to be a challenge for all society and, and including workplaces. But other encroachment I suppose it requires good communication isn't it? this is what today's mm. about it's so important you know you can't sort of just pile in and say, you know, that bloke, you know, beating up. You know, that's not that's not a good way of dealing with potential domestic violence risk. And you know, there's lots of good toolkits, you know, be it business and community again, but great domestic violence um, domestic abuse toolkit, which helps employers need to educate themselves. I think a lot is on managers and leaders to kind of communicate and um, sort of you know understand the borders and. Um, they need to understand what was and educate themselves on it. It's not something that's an, an easy thing. I mean, it requires time and you know, there's burden. Sometimes managers have got their own job too and they don't have got their own job too. And so they need to carve out more space really for those particularly middle managers to be able to manage and understand those issues and educate themselves about how to deal with them properly. Hmm. It, it, it reminds me of conversations that we've had across, you know, all the podcasts that we've um recorded so far around you know that that subtlety it's a real delicate interplay isn't it of of finding out enough about each member of staff so as to be able to serve them best but not to overstep the mark so everybody will have slightly different thoughts and opinions about personal privacy and how much of themselves they actually, you know, for all the conversation yeah. that we've overheard in the last decade about bring your whole, whole self to work, some people yeah. 
just don't want to do that. And I think, mm. you know, there is a requirement now for leaders and managers to up their game in terms of their communication styles. But I'd also argue that it's really important to impress. It's not a rule book. There's no playbook. It's not a formulaic, um, if you do this and this, you will get this. I think it is absolutely that art form of how we build relationship over time and how we learn to trust one another and to support one another and to create community and place for one another. So I think think what's important is that, you know, in terms of leadership and management training, so to speak, that that conversation around communication evolves and progresses. But I would worry if it was um, delivered in too didactic a fashion, because I think there's so much nuance and context as each of and every one of us is so different. That is so true. Again, really well said. I mean, a couple of things. Firstly, um, we have a special interest group on particular things, and there's a mental health special interest group recently with um, a Christian medicine sort of doctors and nurses. There. And someone said something I thought was really interesting about, so say if you've got someone with a mental health issue, um, you know, you've know, got a mental health diagnosis, whatever it is, uh, obviously you want to keep them um, engaged with work and, um, you know, how are you, and, but they need to have the time to kind of, you know, be in a position to return to work. And then they said there's a tension, which is using sort of slightly kind of annoying language, between absence and presenteeism. And you've got to almost sit between there because you've got to help people engage with but give them time off. But, you know, if they're too much time off, then we know every day that they're, they're off is less likely ever to come back. So you've got to go, then sort of coax people to say, just come in, flexible working. I think flexible working is incredibly important now. There's a lot of people, you know, with COVID um, pandemic in a really kind of difficult position in terms of, you know, how they want to come back to work. And so I think that sort of, it could be absence for medical reasons or it could be just in terms of working at home. But being, we don't want to also be at work when you're not in the right place. So that, 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 I thought that was a interesting thing. And the other thing is when you're talking about sort of community and trust, um, before the pandemic, we had uh, we do various workplace visits, which is a lot of fun, and, but there's a lot to it, and including sort of sociologically. Um, so we went off to uh, the mini factory in, in Oxford, and there they are, you know, making the minis. It's obviously got a long, long history, long bridge with sort of British Leyland. But one of the things that BMW did, from what I understand, is uh, when they bought the factory, and you know, great, they've done a good job making minis and stuff, is they sold off the playing fields, and actually. Um, you know, the people who work there, you know, want to play football, do, you know, whatever, something out sort of, um, in the fresh air, exercise-wise, that's you know, not in work. But now they haven't got anything, and actually, that's a terrible mistake. And I think sort of things like community, um, you know, be it sort of, sort of uh, mini factory football club, um, it's really important that people are, have been isolated and lonely. And I think, you know, the... the the employer isn't responsible for people socialise, but they have also got a certain duty to, you know, good workplaces have sort of social sides to them. And so that's an aspect too. I think, yeah, it's fascinating as I'm listening and there's been so much in, and I think it's, we talk now about physical health, well-being, mental crisis, and we're trying to understand what that landscape is because actually well-being, it's, it's, 
it's not just that there is a differentiation between, you know, mental mental health challenges, but also just how we're enabling general well-being, which can be physical well-being, emotional well-being, financial well-being, intellectual well-being, spiritual mm. well-being. And how can we create those environments through community yeah. and trust that enable that so that it's not an agenda it's not a campaign it's an it's yeah. an every day that's built into that that fabric and the and the way workplaces are changing we have an opportunity to address that and things like what seems like a simple decision like you're saying taking away a playing field well is that what's the consequence of that yeah. but then i think in terms of internal communicators as well particularly last year they've been given this kind of challenge in their laps going right you need to do campaigns and initiatives that support well-being you know and they have done some amazing work you know in from from storytelling from making conversations able to take place to sharing personal stories to thinking about during the pandemic you know facilitating or giving resources to parents so that they could help them mm. teach and do all those sorts of things but then there's also really tricky health issues where there is a boundary that it's very difficult I think to to step in and we are trying to, to raise the conversation for things like menopause but we mm. did a, a piece of work recently and um, a big feature in our magazine and we've done a guide in, in partnership which we've obviously reached out to all the right charities around communicating suicide it's really difficult it's a really difficult boundary for an employer to sort of go, well, how do we make it okay to talk about it? What's the language that you use when talking about it? And if you spot something, what's your role? What's your boundary as a human being or as a colleague or as a manager to, to step in? So I think that, the, the, you know, I'm just giving my, there's so much yeah. going on and it's a real wealth of responsibility. And where does the internal communicator's responsibility begin and end? And where does the organization's responsibility begin and end? And where are those boundaries? Um, just my observations, and I'm just fascinated to hear all of that. Mm. And I wonder if we perhaps sometimes need to be really clear when we're talking about mental health versus well-being versus, you know, physical health. Um, but I guess for you, you know, you do talk about the fact that you're evidence-based. What sort of is there been any kind of highlight evidence across any of those areas for you from the pandemic that you've seen and thought this is a real area that organisations need to, to up their game in? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I suppose one thing just in terms of kind of, you know, mm. physical and mental uh, wellbeing, it, it does interrelate, doesn't it? I mean, if, mm. you, if you've got a bad back, then you start to feel, you know, depressed and that's a physical mental thing. Um, I think one area that is important is sort of, you know, the drivers um, and of kind of say mental health, and that are that is things like sleep and mm. shift patterns. Mm. Um, and sh uh, shift patterns, um, you, know, you know, I'm particularly concerned, as I said before, about people who uh, you know not the office workers, not you know. Um, Again, coming back to my dad and sociology, not, not necessarily the bourgeoisie, but the people, you know, the key workers, and things like shift patterns. You know, if you're a bus driver or you know working on a shift, is incredibly important. Now, now it's, it's not straightforward, is it? Because um, if you ask people what shift pattern they want, they might choose something that's actually not good for them. So, you know, because they are doing either one other or two other jobs, or you know, someone I met recently did two, four jobs. You know, 
so if they say, oh, let's move to a 10-hour shift, um, it's because then they can then sort of do another job another time. Um, but if you get the right sort of shift pattern, particularly on nights, um, and you, you, know, you know, it's classic, isn't it? You know, have good food or good places to rest. Um, then that he has huge benefits, doesn't it? And that's to, so it's not only the structure shift, it's the ability to sleep. And um, I heard recently that the fire um, service were looking at taking off beds on, you know, dim lights. That's ridiculous. You know, my wife's wife's in the case and they're not allowed to sleep. And you should allow, allow them to sleep. If they're not, there's nothing operational required. They should um, be able to sleep. And the problem is the people who are not on the nights and feel a bit cross that somehow they're spending the whole time sleeping. But, um, you know, these are difficult issues, and if you have poor sleep, that leads to you know crashes, you know huge amount of uh, road traffic accidents of shift workers coming to or from their shift. So um, I suppose what I'm saying, what what, is, what is, you know, your question to me was what we learned, what's the sort of new things that um, uh, as a retention. I mean, clearly in terms of, sort of pandemic planning, um, that's a huge question that um, you know public health and politics aligning and, um, you know, having proper advice, you know, calling for a kind of proper sense for work and health. I think the government was poorly advised, you know, in terms of obviously PP, but, you know, the people who are um, uh, having to be kind of protected for the high risk, of, you know, but those, those people wasn't, or they weren't necessarily evidence-based, who was in that um, was sort of vulnerable, you know, really vulnerable list. Um, and the kind of return to work side, I think, was, was Poorly managed could be done, done better with better, kind of, as I said, alignment. So that's the whole kind of COVID thing, but that's not really your question. And I suppose I wanted to just focus in on sort of key workers, sort of um, people who kept the economy going. And I suppose what, we, what I'd like to see is, is a reset, you know, just build back better, not only for office workers in terms of things that we're talking about, in terms of good communication and boundaries and managers being able to uh, talk well, but also for people who have really kept the economy going. and. Um, Deserve focus and attention, you know, using the kind of, uh, a term, terminology you probably roll your eyes up in terms of leveling up. But that, those groups who are the shift workers, key workers, how can we get them to have better quality of work? And, and I think shift patterns are a key part of that, and sleep is a key part of that. Can I, can I just ask you a quick question on that, Nick? Because that, I think that's something else that communicators will wrestle with, which is how do we connect with those that type of workers on shift pattern is not easily accessible um that may not necessarily want to get in, engaged too much in conversation uh, what have you seen in terms of those companies that are successful in engaging groups who aren't who are, aren't working at desks who are on shift patterns what's worked yeah. well i think uh i mean you know sorry to sort of challenge back but I, I suppose if you were a shift worker say if you were doing night shifts in uh, in a care home mm-hmm. they would say they would say to you we're not difficult to, um, to to get in contact with. You know, the problems with you. So I remember I, I, I talked to someone who's um, working with the care home on kind of occupational health issues, and they said it's just kind of ridiculous. They said, set up some training course for I don't know, for example, good communication. I'm not sure what it was, but you know, let's say it's good communication in care homes to kind of improve it. And they set it up for sort of 10 a.m. It's like, well, my, I've just done a kind of. <laughs> You know, at 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift, and right. I'm supposed to be going. You know, then I go and pick up the kids and I go to sleep. I take the kids to school and I go to sleep, and then I'm supposed to now go into some communication things. Like, you know, give give me a break. Let's mm. let's let's work on this issue. Um, 
at a time when I'm working. <laughs> it is kind of basic things like that. You know, if you come to them rather than them come to you hmm. as, as a start. So it sounds like a bit of common sense and, yeah. and, and asking some questions, I guess, but as you were saying earlier, a bit more consultation perhaps and yeah. working together. Mm. Mm. And I think that's really interesting as well. You say that point around, well, what's their working? As communicators, we need to work in their working day, not in our working day, to fit in yeah. the rhythm of where they're at rather than, well, we've got this agenda and our to-do list and we've got to get this communication out, So, but we're going to disrupt what makes good work for you and make you feel even more overwhelmed yeah. as opposed to that. So it's okay. it is that thing, isn't it, of thinking about, well, where are my people at? When's the right time? When works for them? How am I being proactive mm. in creating conversation as opposed to just being assumptive that it's it, it's a communicating with them is a is a is a tick list exercise that fits into my agenda? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. And never more important than now, given all we're witnessing in regard of um, the Great Resignation and you know, retention issues here in the UK, you know, we, um, Jen, Dom, we were involved in a piece of work last year where um, an organisation shared some of its retention, engagement and retention stats. And you could see that the, very clearly that the people who were least engaged and therefore kind of most likely to be, you know, flight risk, adverted commas, um, were the people that were working um, at the edges, you know, in the field, who were least associated with a central hub and who were, by the nature of their work, more predisposed to irregular shift patterns and, I guess, work precarity as well. And actually, you know, if any organisation right now is looking to preserve its core body of staff and reduce its attrition rate, then actually the way that we communicate with those individuals, what you said, Jen, and probably, you know, perhaps you said it as well, Nick, just meeting people where they're at, that's really, really important. But of course, we still function in our heads in this very industrialised kind of mental model of how work should be done and I think you know really interesting the point around you know how are we how are we helping colleagues who are on the front line who have been keeping you know the wheels on the wagon for the last 24 months um and so on and I'm not I think we're I think we're we're not thinking deeply enough about some of these issues, and I think we need to be. I think you know because yeah, I, th I think so. I think you know, like you say, it's, you know, there's a bit of a kind of crisis of kind of retention as people moving about. I mean, one one thing is this sort of job design thing. You know, create jobs that are good jobs. Work with people on that. If you're kind of if you're recruiting, you know, think about that job. Work with that person um, on making the job work for them. I think there is an opportunity to do that. I mean, people um, used to talk about job design in the 60s and 70s, perhaps in the 60s when, you know, in that time when there was certain economic growth and um, people had the luxury of doing it. And I suppose we're, it's not necessarily luxury now It's um, because of kind of economic growth. It's more about because we've reached a kind of 
human position where we've got to reset in terms of how jobs and work happen, um, occurs because we've just been through something where we can see things can be different and um, so so yeah I think job design is a big part of it I mean again it's, it's slightly kind of uh, might roll their eyes and sort of terminology like that but it is important thing that what are the jobs that we're creating and how can they best work for people it makes me think Kat, as well about the stuff when we connected on as well when there was the RSA which both myself and Kat are fellows of and where we got to know each other was when they released their their future of work piece of work Mm. do you remember that the the four futures this is all pre-pandemic and they were and they were talking about this 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 shift and and they had that I can't remember all of them there was the the tech economy and then there was I think the uh, I think it was the emotional economy or something whereas Mm. we're in danger of taking away connection and automating work so much that actually what you'll get is actually that doesn't feel like good work anymore that doesn't feel yeah. like fulfilling work it doesn't make me feel like I want to feel so oh, it's the empathy economy that was I think the other one they described mm. so you're going to see people shift more towards those kinds of social care type situations because actually we want to find meaning in our work and actually meaning is something and, and that can be personal we all have different values of way of finding mm. meaning but actually meaning is what can make good work feel and actually really drive that sense of well-being and and I think it picks up on that point Nick that you were talking about as well or at the beginning around purpose that sense yeah. of something and whether that is yeah. and how are we really looking at that with a a, a fresh pair of eyes because we do have an opportunity to reset mm. Absolutely. I think, you know, because the organisational narratives around purpose and meaning tend to to gravitate towards, well, this is our purpose and this is our meaning. And haven't we done a brilliant job in the boardroom because we've now identified what these things are? For me, as a worker, I can look at that organisational purpose and that, that whatever, that the narrative around meaning and I can look at it and I can basically agree or disagree. I can I can say, yeah, that ticks my, you know, piques my interest, or no, it doesn't. Whereas actually, the more advanced way to approach the whole construct of organisational purpose is to say, you know, this is why we exist, and this is why we do what we do, and these are the things that we need to achieve in order that all of us can continue to get paid. Let's have a conversation about how that meets your emotional, psychological needs um, and see whether we're aligned in that. But all too often, (laughs) it seems to me that this conversation around organisational purpose finishes the moment that whoever the elite squad is in, in, you know, behind closed doors has come up with something sexy and pithy and so on. And actually, there's so much more of a conversational piece that needs to be had around it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why you guys are really doing a great job. And, you know, communication is fundamental in that. And so communication on all kinds of levels and um, different groups and um, creating different spaces and kind of community of conversation. Um, it really is the kind of um, where things, you know, there's purpose and then there's communication in terms of kind of things like sort of mental health and well-being. And um, it's so important. And, you know, one size doesn't fit all and, you know, you do, I mean, I've, I've, one thing I've, I've kind of really appreciated over the past year or two is, is the role of kind of organisational psychologists or you know, people such as yourselves who think in terms of 
organizations and how they communicate within it, um, you know, what happens within, because that's a real driver. You know, occupational health often has been kind of put as kind of after the events, um, sometimes unfortunately a bit punitive. And, you know, we need to be much more focused on the prevention piece of what occupational health professionals obviously trained to do, but using the skills of occupational psychologists and then, um, you know, other people like physiotherapists or, um, you know, other, other kind of health professionals too. But obviously it's more than just health. And I suppose what, what you're you know, focused on, and like you say, is the kind of leadership management culture that really drives, um, you know, whether organisations, employees are in a good place, and that really drives whether people do actually end up having physical mental health issues. If communication is poor, then... There are consequences. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I, and I think you know, I, I don't, the, the communication it, it is fundamental. And as you're talking, I'm just sort of writing down sort of my sort of notes. Is we need to create good work, as in yeah. whatever that, and that's personal. Mm. But we also need to create good environment, and that can mm. be depending on someone's role. That could be driving a bus, which is their physical environment, and a factory could be their environment, their home could be their environment, but oh. their people and their team that they surround themselves are their environment. So what happens at that level as well? But that also needs to be based on, on communication and dialogue, which has boundaries, but also as well, how do we as communicators perhaps tap into those experts like psychologists or like those oh. people that make sure when we're thinking about, there's the everyday communication, but when we're thinking about talking and enabling dialogue on challenging health or, or well-being topics, that we're using that that kind of kind of language, I guess. So, it's, and I don't know, everyone might have a view on this. So, just listening to that in, I don't, Nick, do, from your point of view, is so how can we? That's my view on how we can internal communications can create a healthier workplace. Is there anything that particularly that, that stands out to you and go, if I think about that, that's what the thing I would work on today to help drive healthier workplaces based on good foundation of internal communication? Uh, well, it's all of the above, isn't it? It's having a mm. sense of purpose and good communication. I suppose, um, you know, we're very keen not to use language that medicalizes. I think, um, you know, life is has stress and stresses and, there's anxiety, you know, the pandemic, you know, it's been anxious and stressful, but it doesn't necessarily mean you've got a diagnosis of kind of PTSD. So I think, um, you know, sometimes if you give someone sort of, you know, something like a PTSD, then you can end up getting PTSD even when you didn't have it. So um, I think language is important. Obviously, you know, purpose, good communication, um, but sort of, you know, avoiding medicalization. Um, I, th I think is is important. And one of the things that one of our trustees is this guy called Professor Neil Greenberg, who's um at King's and he's done a lot of work with um uh kind of military, you know, coming back from the Gulf or Afghanistan or whatever. Um, you know, obviously dealing with PTSD and um but you know, avoiding PTSD is is, is is by having good communication, good teams. You know, I said at the top of this um podcast about the spaces between, the spaces between, and that is literally a direct quote from his work, which is, you know, how teams between teams, that space between, is so important as well as within that team. Um, I mean, I, you know, just a kind of, you know, hopefully kind of serious little case study of, of my own. So we had a street party, um, <clears throat> invited um, the fire brigade, and it was actually just after Grenville, and um, so you know, they were there with the kids doing the. Um, 
when what all the street. Um, and um, I said, you know, you guys okay? That's terrible. And um, I said, yeah, everyone's fine. Except the bloke went on the holiday for two weeks um, straight after the fire. And, you know, obviously he's been roommate for two weeks and come back and it's a complete mess. He just didn't, didn't reconnect with his team and everyone sort of decompressed together. Um, so, you know, I'm giving a kind of medical example where um, my overall message is uh, let's try and avoid sort of metaphorizing, but hopefully you just what I'm saying. It's about reinforcing community, isn't it? You know, the role that yeah. conversation and communication plays in building community and building a community that is as inclusive and as mindful of all of our differences as can be. Yeah. Um, because I think when we feel part of something, we can do anything. We are inspired and motivated and energized and all of those things. And I think, you know, language and, and conversation and relationship are the underpinnings of community. And, and so, and I know we've talked about this again in previous conversations, you know, the role of the internal communication um, professional is amplifying and expanding and, and, and we're moving, you know, on from or adding to because I don't think like the traditional work that an internal communication professional is is going to stop but the addition is kind of like an embodied communication how do we how do we use our words language interactions rapport building etc to build that sense of community that that people feel connected to and I think there was something really interesting I know we've got to wrap up um, shortly but you know when you talked about um, the field trip to the mini plant in oh, Oxford yeah. and doing away with the football pitch you know that would have been seen as a very transactional kind of number crunching exercise of you know oh well we can get rid of this land and we'll save this amount of money and we'll gain this amount of money and so on and so forth but it's hard to put into words, isn't it? The camaraderie yeah, and so. the kinship that that derives from. And I'm not a football fan, by the way. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> no, it's just a kid. It's like whatever you score, you're into. Yeah, I mean, just to, just yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I mean, I think there was a kind of um, there's a geographic thing. You know, there's similar part in Swindon, and in Oxford, you know, you've got all the clever people and the students, and then you're working with actually a bit of a loser. So they're already kind of like, oh, you know, not in a completely good place in Swindon. They're doing exactly the same job. Their BMI um, in their kind of general health, um, <clears throat> terrible. Um, but they're all kind of happy because in Swindon, you know, that's a good job working at the Honda Park, doing exactly the same thing. So the kind of place is important. I mean, I know we've got to wrap up. I, I, I do want to say, I mean, it's, you know, a bit ironic, isn't it? Kind of white, white man. But diversity is important. And diversity is so important. And we talk about communication. Everyone obviously you know, needs to be respected and involved, and we know that sort of diverse um, workforce is much more productive. You know, you get much more kind of uh, you know all this innovation and sort of intelligence of everyone coming together is, is so much better. And I, you know, I do think you know COVID sort of the whole sort of diversity agenda has kind of completed or come together, um, and you know, we need to build back better with good jobs that really resets in terms of you know respecting. What everyone brings to us is so important, I think. And, um, you know, there has been, you know, with the COVID pandemic, obviously, people, you know, of kind of, um, you know, who have been at the sort of front end, the key workers, 
are have suffered more, and you can see their kind of death rates. I mean, to be actually brutal, you know, the bus drivers have much higher death rates, and there's much more kind of ethnic virus working with bus drivers. So, you know, there's a real kind of moral imperative as well to ensure that we kind of reset better, and um, you know, just in terms of people, you know, everyone needs to be kind of involved in that, that conversation and diversity inclusion. You need to actually take a to use another annoying words of intersectional lens on this to make sure communication brings in all um, in a, all and sundry to this. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I've, I have loved this conversation. I found it fascinating. There's so much. And, and Nick, just thank you for sharing your perspective, I think, on it and, and the things that you've talked about. Um, and I think that we can walk away thinking there's an opportunity to reset. It's complicated. It's challenging. There's lots of things to think about. But actually, if we can start with just enabling good communication, rapport and community and relationship, that could go could go a long way to helping us to, to reset, to make absolutely, healthier yeah, workplaces of the future. Yeah, brilliant yeah. thanks very much everybody Good. thank you thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot see you next time thanks for listening today this episode has been brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and was hosted by myself Jen Sproul Kat Barnard and Dominic Walters and we've been discussing the role of internal comms in workplace well-being this episode was produced by Jessica Williams and Shabita Luogunpalu and if you enjoyed this episode today, we'd be enormously grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on the channel you use to tune in to help others know that we're here. Hopefully you'll tune in again next time.